Hello and welcome to Tyranny Today. We are currently sharing our show in an audio form, but we still hope to go back to our original form in some, on some other platform following the demise of Beams, so stay tuned. As Greg would say every Wednesday, a lot is going on. And indeed, after a week-long break, we have a lot to cover. In a recent article in Foreign Affairs, Hank Paulson, a former Goldman Sachs executive who officiated as U.S. Treasury Secretary during the Great Financial Crisis, argued that Washington doesn't seem to be doing enough to establish a modus vivendi with Beijing. In his economic version of realism, Hank Paulson claims that it is the U.S. that distorts the trade flows because everyone in the world wants to trade with China, and only the U.S. alone is trying to isolate Beijing economically. I understand that the intense days of the great financial crisis era cooperation may have clouded Mr. Paulson's horizons, but let me bring up just two examples of how China is using its trade prowess in ways that U.S. Treasury officials could not quite foresee 15 years ago. Last month, on January 24th, Bloomberg reported that the Biden administration had accused companies owned by the Chinese state of assisting the Russian war in Ukraine, and that the administration was working to determine if the government in Beijing was cognizant of what was going on. If asking rhetorical questions was a way to give Beijing some time, then it made a good use of this. Wall Street Journal, several days later, revealed that, according to customs data, China is supplying Russia's military with dual-use components for fighter jets, surveillance and radar equipment, infrared cameras, navigation devices, and so on. And the data is apparently based on the analysis of 80,000 transactions. In short, experts are flourishing, Mr. Paulson. And then, in a separate report, we learned that China has been openly discussing banning experts of advanced solar wafers, as well as polysilicon, black silicon, and silicon casting equipment. These are components for vo photovoltaic equipment, so solar infrastructure. PRC controls 97% of the global output of solar wafers and some 79% of polysilicon production. Al Gore, who in Davos pontificated about us not doing enough to stop climate change, won't be happy, except that us doesn't quite clear the bar here. Both Europe and the United States have cut CO2 emissions in the last two years, while China added 200 gigawatt of coal power during the same period. And China is not interested in discussing climate change because it links this issue to unrelated areas of friction, including Southeast China Sea, the Senkaku Islands, Taiwan, the Himalayan border, and what have you. China may indeed control 97% of solar wafer production because it did exactly what it had done with APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients. Chinese government illegally subsidized mass production of wafers below costs, allowing its companies to quickly gain market share and destroy any remaining Western production, upon which Chinese producers achieved a near monopoly status, and when no productive capacity was left in the West, they increased the prices. And by threatening to ban experts of silicon casting equipment, PRC is trying to hold on to this monopoly and prevent any Western operators from resuming production, even though manufacturing costs are still 20% lower in China than in the United States. Even before you factor in national security considerations, such a concentration of production in very few sites in one 
hostile country exacerbates the price of the underlying commodity, resulting in a quadrupling of polysilicon prices over the past year. And that's not all. Beijing has also announced that it will shortly implement an updated list of technologies prohibited or restricted for export. Predictably, included in this list are technologies relating to processing over Earths, which we need not least for the production of permanent magnets, a technology finding applications from direct drive engines and wind power to precision ammunitions. Such moves may be viewed as a retaliation for semiconductor sanctions by the United States or the recent announcement of another slew of anti-Huawei measures. But this struggle has a long history. A decade ago, China tried to acquire the only viable rare earth miner in Australia, which was eventually saved with a financial lifeline from Japan. Yes, Japan has always kept a watchful eye on China's military-industrial complex, just as Wall Street's naive capital moguls sought opportunities in the Chinese market. China has 90% market share in rare earth magnets. Fortunately, the remaining 10% are in the hands of our single most important ally, Japan. According to the CEO of Linus, the most important rare earth mining and processing company in the West, all high-end magnets are made by Japan or by Japanese companies such as Shingetsu in Vietnam. China is now trying to protect this technology in processing of samarium, neodymium iron boron magnets, and cerium magnets made from more easily accessible light rare earths, so lanthanides. A PRC is also planning to protect ionic mine leaching process, but luckily the world is not completely unaware of this, and ionic clay mining of rare earths is being developed in places such as Brazil or Uganda, all for the use by the Western allies. If we assume for the moment that the World Trade Organization is dying a slow death, then all these moves by Beijing are actually legal. Legal in terms of China's own legislation, not least the export control law promulgated in late 2020. Hank Paulson deplores lost commercial opportunities in the trade standoff between the US and China. Well, obviously, Chinese exporters do not care that much about the lost market share. Even though we have known this for a while, the West has been simply too sloppy developing mining and refining capability of rare earths and other critical materials. There are two related problems. Number one, the permitting timelines, especially in Europe and the United States. It is enough for some obscure wild buckwheat plant to grow in the vicinity of a strategically significant lithium deposit in Nevada to slow down the permitting process by three years. And we may not have those three years because the Third World War has already started. The second issue is the failure of capital markets to channel funds towards pools of scarcity. When the prices of critical materials fell in 2018 and 2019, uh, Western capital failed to step up to the plate to foster innovation and secure mineral supplies. Now, all I heard during those years was that lithium was a bubble and rare earth mining is environmentally damaging and not economically viable in the first place, given the underlying volatility of this market. So who came to put its hat over a whole range of assets from South America to Africa and beyond? Chinese state-owned enterprises and China's private companies steered into these projects by the boards which, by law, are now dominated by members of the Chinese Communist Party, CCP. There is no export of capital out of China without the green light from the CCP, and since China's rationale does not swing with the fluctuations of the capital market moods, the opportunities could be captured while no one else was interested. Last week, on the sidelines of a hedge fund conference in Miami, an Israeli-US entrepreneur echoed again the naivete of our thinking. 
he overheard from Ray Dalio or from someone else that China will never attack Taiwan because 70% of semiconductors in China are imported from Taiwan. This is what I called an excess of commercial rationality. If dictators really were guided by commercial rationality, Putin would have never invaded Ukraine. Putin's reasons are not commercial. Yes, historically Polish-Lithuanian landowners, Russian aristocracy, and even Adolf Hitler may have all salivated the prospect of Ukrainian's ultra-fertile Black Earth lands, but that's now history. Towards the end of its existence, Soviet Union, which included Ukraine, imported between 10 to 15 million tons of wheat annually. But by 2002, by then long deprived of Ukraine, Russia began to export grains, eventually rising its shipments to 40 million tons per annum. That is half of the domestic production that shot up to 80 million tons. So for all of its oil and gas jawboning, it was actually the agricultural sector that marked post-Soviet Russia's economy's single biggest market success. And with the exception of access to certain military applications in Ukraine, such as gas turbine producer Motorsich, it is unlikely that Russia is interested in specific Ukrainian assets or that this is the source of the conflict. At least we don't see it from the way in which they conduct the destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure. So no, tyrannies do not share our economic rationality. It's not about economics, stupid. Karl Marx got it wrong, and so did classical economists, and so did U.S. president in the 1990s. But the Wall Street crowd never learns. As soon as China decided to get rid of its elderly and opened up following three years of COVID lockdown, Wall Street folks just couldn't help themselves. Between December and January, some $20 billion of U.S. funds were channeled into Chinese equities. The result? A 3% gain. Really? You take all this risk just to earn 3%? What's the point? If you really need to diversify away from the U.S. market, and that's probably the right decision, then you can earn better returns just about everywhere else. Over the, just those two months, you earned 25% more in the U.K. market and twice as much in Germany, as DAX index has been up 6.30%. On a risk-adjusted basis, it makes zero sense to invest in China unless you believe that UK or Germany are more risky than China because, I don't know, Xi Jinping's buddy Putin is about to roll his tanks into Alexanderplatz and Berlin lob V2 V2 missiles into St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And of course, there is no V2 flying over the channel. But suddenly, there are plenty of other flying objects that have managed to distract us. By now, another Chinese balloon is hovering over Costa Rica. When I visited this country several years ago, I asked locals what would they do if their national security were to be threatened. Costa Rica famously doesn't have its own armed forces. No defense budget, nada. So, what did they say? Mira, si algo pasa, llamamos 1-800-HELP-USA. We'll just call 1-800-HELP-USA. The answer sounded glib and somewhat flippant, but what else would Ticos do? What would you do if you don't own an F-22 Raptor with a pilot and a Sidewinder missile? When in June of 2020, an identically-looking Chinese balloon hovered over, over Miyagi-Ken Prefecture in Japan, COVID-masked housewives hollered, Yuho, Yuho, meaning UFO in Japanese. 
And similar Chinese balloons hovered over our heads multiple times before, not only above Japan, Costa Rica, Hawaii, Taiwan, Colombia, and Canada, but also above Donald Trump's mainland America. And that, at least on three occasions. Of course, there are many questions regarding the most recent balloon incident, but they do not really include what the Chinese communists advanced as weather monitoring. One local South Carolina was quoted on NHK TV saying, why do they worry about our weather and not theirs? Of course, it's not about the weather. According to Financial Times, already in September 2018, Chinese military channel of state broadcaster CCTV reported that high-altitude balloons were tested for hypersonic missiles. Another focus area in the Chinese military balloon flights was to collect data that can enhance the accuracy of over-the-horizon radar system used for targeting in wartime. The prevailing atmospheric density would apparently help the PLA develop refractive effect prediction systems, critical for advanced radars that aid missile, air, and naval operations. Such balloons may have been doing the so-called tip-and-cue operations, whereby the balloon detects something of interest, whether it's snippets of conversations or electronic signals, and then sends those coordinates to satellites, which focus their higher-end capabilities on the targeted location. Now, other experts also suggested the balloon may have been triggering American radar defenses and thus learning more about how U.S. weapon systems communicate with each other. Okay, fine, let's say it's all true. The question, however, remains over the bizarre timing of the incident. Didn't Biden and Xi Jinping try to build guardrails in the relationship post their meeting in Bali last November? In other words, why flaunt an 18th century technology transported from the time of the Montgolfier brothers on the eve of the now postponed visit by Anthony Blinken to Beijing? One possible answer is that this is direct reaction to something America is doing. But what could it be? Where does it hurt these days? One spot on the map could be the Philippines. President Bongbong Marcos has recently approved U.S. military access to the sites under the two countries' Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, EDCA, from 2014. The EDCA allows U.S. forces to pre-position equipment and rotate forces in Philippine military bases, but it was kind of dormant because Marcos's predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte, suspended implementation as he was trying to phone on Beijing. Two new EDCA sites could be in Cagayan, a province close to Taiwan that includes islands in the critical Bashi Channel between the Philippines and Taiwan. I've been there and the beaches are full of heavy mineral ilmenite and dispersed magnetite, a possible source of iron ore sands. But the Philippines has better beaches in the southwest, in Palawan, an elongated island in the South China Sea with stunning karst outcrops of unparalleled beauty. Palawan is close to the disputed Spratlys and Subic Bay, which is home to a former U.S. naval base. So, could it be that the balloon is a response? That's unlikely. Like any school bully, and not unlike Putin, China is always hitting the weaker partner in a dispute, as was the case during the Huawei crisis. At the time, Beijing uh, took two Canadian hostages. Remember, not American, but Canadian. There are many ways in which China could retaliate at the Philippines rather than the United States. Another hypothesis is that, well, that's the way Chinese always do it. Before COVID, on the eve of Xi Jinping's high-profile visit to New Delhi, the Chinese officials went out of their way to embarrass Prime Minister Modi in India by advertising China's fresh claims over Arunachal Pradesh, India's Himalayas region, 
to the east of Bhutan. And yet, this time, it happens at a time when Beijing has truly been trying to earn some time in its conflict with the West, patching up uh, the trade war with Australia, which China failed to win, dispatching the affable Mr. Yu He to Davos, as we mentioned two weeks ago, rolling out a charm offensive to Europe and allowing Guo Shuqing to clear consumer tax stocks of further wrongdoing so that Western investors can again salivate at the earnings of Alibaba, Tencent, or, or Baidu. But no, let us scuttle it all and may Blinken lose face, because we can. It's as if Beijing was unable to see itself through the eyes of others. It looks like an acute case of geopolitical autism. It's as if CCP was unaware of other actors' perceptions or feelings. Indeed, when Beijing's analysts conduct research on, say, Japan's changing position regarding Taiwan, they attribute Tokyo's recent pro-Taiwanese shift entirely to some murky, dark forces inside Nippon, its historical enemy. But they do not appear to see in it any reflection of Beijing's own actions that threaten Japan's security. The third hypothesis is that we are in a transition period in Beijing when the left hand simply doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Why? Because for another month we are left with a lame duck government in China, dominated by members of CCP factions who resoundly lost the race against Xi Jinping's clique at the party congress last November. This is a highly unusual situation in China and could go some way towards explaining why accidents happen. From here it's only a inch towards good old Kremlinology or Western analysts were trying to identify who was the provocateur and who was the reformer in an otherwise unreformable system run by people profoundly convinced of their superiority over the West. The fourth option is the scariest of them all, is the hypothesis of bad emperor. Now, what is a bad emperor? Historically, China was the first culture to develop a highly centralized system of governance. In the third century BC, a brutal Qing dynasty consolidated power and ruled ruthlessly according to the precepts of legalism, a form of social organization based essentially on a long list of elaborate punishments. This idea of law was opposed by Confucianists, many of whom were murdered in most macabresque ways by the legalist. Qing dynasty was gone after only 15 years, as were 81 other Chinese dynasties, but the tradition of strong statehood remained, unchecked by any shade of the rule of law, not to mention accountability. And by the way, the two are not the same. Wilhelmine Prussia or contemporary Singapore have or had a viable statehood and undeniably had or have a rule of law, but no bottom-up accountability. The problem that arises for such a state, <coughs> like China, that has neither, is that it can only function properly when you have a very capable emperor. And that's not always the case, because ascendancy to power and effective exercise of power are two different things and two different skills. There is little that can be done if the emperor is incapable, in other words, bad. And there is no mechanism to remove him other than through an outright revolt. When the revolt does succeed, Chinese scholars will justify it with the concept of the mandate of heaven, first introduced by Manzi, a prominent Confucian scholar. But there is no way to know a priori when the mandate of heaven is lost by the eventually replaced bad emperor. There is just no mechanism for succession, just a justification exposed when the new ruler appears successful, wrenching the power from the incumbent. And in China's history, this wrenching is done using extreme violence. CCP here is now different, and it follows more legalist rather than Confucian tradition, with the powerful clique being above the law, that is, the constitution, which the country notionally has. 
There are numerous examples of bad emperors in China's history. Certainly the murderous Empress Wu falls into this category, as does Emperor Taizu, who abolished the office of prime minister to deal personally with thousands of official documents on a weekly basis. Or the Emperor Shenzong during Ming Dynasty, who allowed thousands of documents to pile up unattended, eventually contributing to the collapse of the dynasty. All of them were bad emperors, and their actions, or inactions, led to eventual upheavals. According to his hypothesis, the job, as it has been refined post-CCP Congress last fall, is above Xi Jinping's pay grade. It could be that China's brinkmanship is actually the result of all the four drivers. Beijing, indeed, is irked that U.S. no longer swallows China's Wally win-win cooperation propaganda. The current emperor has taken on too much to process information effectively. The government has been weakened by the factional struggles in this transitional period, and the gut instinct remains to defy America, if anything, for domestic audience. So much so that the question of timing remains otherwise inexplicable. If it wasn't shelled by an F-22 over the Atlantic coast, the balloon could have floated straight to Hradčany, the castle in Prague, where the newly elected president Petr Pavel has clearly stated that PRC is not a friendly country. Pavel took the congratulatory call from Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen, much to Beijing's displeasure, and even announced that he hoped to meet with President Tsai in person. Pavel's election is a welcome change after too many years spent with Milos Zeman, an alcoholic remembered for awkwardly hugging Xi Jinping's shoulders without much homoerotic reciprocity. For now, Xi Jinping's visits to Europe seem to be a thing of the past, unless we still consider Moscow to be part of Europe. Putin has invited Xi Jinping to visit him this month, in February, ideally for the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs echoed one of the main tenets of Russian policy on that occasion, and that is the importance of, quote-unquote, strengthening alliances among non-Western countries to counter the growing alliances like NATO. And Moscow emphasized that it is willing to build a multipolar world. Any visit in Moscow is unlikely to impress the head of EU Commission Ursula von der Leyen, whose anti-Chinese statement in Davos didn't go unnoticed, and who has since returned to Kiev with the head of the European Council, Henri Michel, to discuss Ukraine's pathway to European Union. A Putinist friend of mine was outraged asking when did the disenfranchised Ukrainians have the opportunity to vote in a referendum? in favor against the EU. Well, if I was interested in trolling, I would have said that they probably voted on Maidan in 2013, but the truth is that only a handful of EU members held a referendum on the issue, and the UK famously did so a year after joining in 1974. So there is no common practice. But the reaction shows how angry Putinists are at the idea of Ukraine slowly inching towards integration with Europe. Before that happens, the country needs to win the war, and this is not yet guaranteed. On the occasion of the anniversary of the Battle of Stalingrad, referring to tank deliveries to Ukraine, Putin mused something about lepers with crosses coming again and threatening Russia again. First, the tank that Nazi Germany used in the Soviet Union and North Africa, by the way, was called a tiger, not a leopard. And this time it threatens nobody in Russia as it will be exclusively deployed in Ukraine, a separate country, something that for Russian nationalists sticks like a fishbone in the larynx. This independent Ukraine still has some 600 tanks in its inventory, and now is likely to obtain 90 Leopard 2 tanks as a part of 150 to 200 machines, including UK-made Challengers and US-made Abrams. The Leopards 2 have excellent night vision, are highly accurate, fast-moving, 
easier to handle with logistics and supplies because they have better fuel efficiency and they're also lighter for swampy ground in spring than, say, US-made Abrams. In addition, Denmark, Germany, Netherlands and possibly Belgium are planning to donate 178 Leopard 1, the workhorses of Cold War era NATO in the 1970s. These vehicles sport lighter armor, are less precise and their gun is less powerful, but numbers do matter. The question is now whether this will change much for Ukraine facing an expected Russian offensive post-mobilization. And here the views differ. One Leopard is Leopard 2 is apparently worth 10 Russian T-72s. Russian propagandists may be bragging on TV about their tanks' allegedly longer firing range, but ask yourself the question, who makes better cars, Germans or Russians and their Chechen allies? Germany only has 300 tanks in active duty forces, but there are some 2200 in Europe overall. Spain has pledged between 56 and 90, and with Poland, Norway, Sweden and Netherlands, the official pledge now runs in hundreds, including Soviet-era tanks from Morocco of all places. And is this enough? Russia today has more equipment than it had on February 24th last year. How come? Well, it has been emptying post-Soviet magazines. And at the beginning of the war, Russia had 3,000 tanks in operation. But that compares to the total number of 13,000 vehicles, a big portion of which has been made battle-ready since then. Losses are huge, and 200 or so tanks that Russia produces annually are insufficient to refill those losses. But Russia's industry has been churning out stuff in war economy mode at least since September last year. This is not quite yet the case of the Western European industry. In fact, this numbers game is now a big question mark looming for 2023 in Ukraine and beyond for Ukraine and Taiwan. Just like fund managers risk-adjusted market performance, the Western world's successes in 2022 in keeping Ukraine alive and keeping Taiwan free offer no guarantees about future successes. Russia failed in Kiev, in Kharkiv and in Kherson because Russian army's modernization for 21st century did not quite prepare it for a total land war. We know that Moscow underestimated the enemy's organization, logistics, motivation or access to surveillance. It had little by contempt for the idea of a Ukrainian state that allegedly did not exist. Only in Donbass did they expect strong defense line, given that Ukraine was readying for the front line since 2014. But today, the one million or so trained Ukrainians are not as good as the battle-forged original army a year ago, and the government in Kiev is forced to tighten regulations against deserters. Average citizens are increasingly tired of the struggle, and Russians are penetrating Ukraine with capitulation propaganda. Facing Russia's mobilization of 200,000 new soldiers to offset losses of about 200, Ukraine still has a numerical advantage, counting its army, its National Guard, and its border guard service. Attackers need a force that's at least three times and sometimes five or seven times larger. Can Russia mobilize three million people? That would be possibly the ultimate limit, but we know that Putin is talking about additional 20 divisions about artillery brigades developed into divisions, about some one and a half million people with equipment, especially in the currently undermanned northern area, bordering Finland and Karelia. The 6th Army had only two brigades, but now it will have two divisions, plus one in Karelia, part of Finland that Russia has occupied since the Second World War. Military potential on the Finnish border will be developed. All these plans are supposed to meet the timeline of 2026, and this is quite alarming for Finland and other Eastern Europeans because by then 
the U.S. will be engaged with China in the Pacific, and the NATO's timelines are more protracted than Russia's, not to mention the somewhat sketchy budgets of some of the governments involved, such as Poland's. It is therefore not surprising that Eastern Europeans are pushing for more help to Ukraine. No sooner had the Leopard tanks left the decision-making hangar than Poland and others are talking about fighter jets. NATO's head Stoltenberg may sound somewhat reluctant on this topic, but Czechs and Poles are now more openly talking about sending Soviet-era MiG-29s. The question is about the use of Air Force assets in general. President Zelensky would like to bomb Russian airports to stop their attacks, but it is unlikely that the West would support this. Still, France, which has decommissioned its Rafale fighter jets, and unlike German or the British, is not constrained by U.S. decisions regarding their deployment, could deploy such assets to Ukraine, and President Macron said exactly that. At the beginning of the war, Ukraine had about 150 jets. It's now more or less 100. So even if Poland and Slovakia offered their MiGs 29, the demands for F-16s will not abate, whether from Ukraine or from Ukraine's regional allies. Poland has only 48 of those, and therefore is an unlikely source of shipments, but the Netherlands is ready to pass such plans on to Kiev. At the next Rammstein meeting, fighter jets will be discussed at long last. U.S. reticence regarding sending Air Force assets to Ukraine is understandable. In a recent article in the Wall Street Journal, it has been revealed that at the current state of our industrial base, in case of a Taiwan contingency, the U.S. will run out of munitions in a week. Yes, in a week. What the Ukraine war has taught us is how munition-intensive the conventional war is and how unprepared the West is for such a conflict after 30 years of slumbering and financing our enemy's military capability. It turns out that even now, a year since the war started, the U.S. industry lacks sufficient number of multi-year contracts with the government and is reluctant to build munition stockpiles unless they are on long-term order from the federal government. And in this business, there are no alternatives, no private off-takers for this stuff. So while ships, aircraft, or submarines have multi-year contracts, munitions are ordered on an annual basis. It is now imperative that multi-year contracts be introduced, especially for key platforms such as long-range anti-ship missiles or joint air-to-surface stealth missiles, which have a two-year production timeline. And DOD, Departments of Defense, buys about 700 of these per annum. If we don't adopt the system now, and we won't be ready for the conflict in, with China in, say, 2025-26, and by then, Finland, Poland, Germany may need to be ready for a China-supported Russia and Europe. Sorry, Volkswagen, it's your myopia that got us here. Tragically, what is needed is planning for an extended war with prepositioning of the munitions to where they are needed, for example in Taiwan, which, unlike Ukraine, doesn't have a border with Poland to save it. U.S. Congress has to solve this dilemma because timelines are simply too long to get the weapons from the U.S. to our allies. Even if a um, commercial transaction takes two years, once military bureaucracy steps in, the timeline extends to four years, and we no longer have those four years. Japan, Poland, Australia, Taiwan, Sweden, South Korea no longer have this time. Luckily, there are first signs that industrial production is slowly picking up, at least in Germany and France, and also in the U.S. Why? Because helping Ukraine win is finally settling in in the minds of the Western decision-makers. It's no longer about not allowing Ukraine to lose war, which was Olaf Scholz's refrain until recently. Now it's finally about helping them win. A bloody nose for Putin and a clear message to China. But for now, if the balloon saga is showing us something, is that the deterrence is not working with China, as it didn't work with Russia a year ago. 
If China produces munitions five times or six times faster than we do, why would they feel deterred? If Germany has only 300 tanks, but Russia has kept 13,000, why would they feel deterred? Why would have felt deterred 50 weeks ago? We are failing to keep ourselves safe. Realists would like us to sacrifice buffers, such as Ukraine, Poland, Taiwan, or South Korea. And some perverse believe that the resulting world will be, what, a safer place, a better place? No wonder, then, that the statements are becoming sharper and less ambiguous. Joe Biden now says openly that America will lose nukes to defend South Korea. It's a terrifying prospect. But just look back again at the fast receding memories of 2022. Many brave Russians protested against Putin's invasion. They were crushed or forced into exile. Many courageous Iranians protested against the brutal regime's medieval restrictions and lack of economic prospects. They were crushed and killed by the hundreds. And its regime is now actively helping Russia bust the Western oil sanctions. And when young Chinese urbanites hit the roof after months of collective imprisonment, the white paper movement quickly flourished across the country's campuses. Where are they now? Where are they today? In concentration camps? Disappeared? Harvested for organs to extend the lives of communist bosses? On this cheerful note, I wish you a great week and hope to be with you again next week in another sequel of Tyranny Today.